The House January 6th panel subpoenas former President Donald Trump, seeking answers about his role in the insurrection at the Capitol. It's Friday, October 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Supreme Court chooses not to get involved in the case over top-secret documents taken from Trump's Florida home. Also this hour, the massive data leak in Mexico that uncovered some of that country's biggest secrets. Plus, how the latest scandal in the Los Angeles City Council has exposed racial divides in that city. And California looks to pair solar power with an older technology to solve some of its energy problems. We have a problem if we're going to have these continuous heat waves. We need something. We need a facility that will store energy so we can't, we don't have to turn off our appliances. Rain through the morning, clouds this afternoon around 70. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House January 6th committee is wrapping up its investigation into the attack on the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports the next step includes issuing a final report by year's end and a subpoena for former President Donald Trump. The House Select Committee sunsets at the end of the year, and for now, members have said they expect its final report to be released in December. But the panel has at least one major subpoena ahead, a demand for former President Trump's testimony. Vice Chair Liz Cheney says Trump remains the one central figure in the attack whom the panel has yet to hear from. For his part, Trump responded to the news on his social media app by saying the panel is, quote, a total bus that has served to, quote, divide the country. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. Washington. Separately, the Supreme Court has rejected a request from Trump to intervene in the case of classified documents the FBI seized from his Florida property. The decision means the Justice Department can continue its criminal investigation concerning the documents. Police in Raleigh, North Carolina, have arrested a suspect in yesterday's deadly shootings that left five people dead and two others wounded. Authorities say the suspect is a white juvenile male. He was detained hours after the shootings occurred. Raleigh Mayor Marianne Baldwin. We have to end this mindless gun violence that is happening in our country. We have work to do, but there are too many victims. We have to wake up. Authorities say the shootings occurred near a walking trail in the Raleigh area. Relatives of the people who were murdered in a high school shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018 are upset and angry. A Florida jury recommended a life sentence for the gunman. Nicholas Cruz had also faced the possibility of the death penalty. The judge will hold a hearing next month to formally impose the life sentence without possibility of parole. A Texas sheriff is seeking visas for a group of migrants who were unwillingly dropped off in Martha's Vineyard last month when they boarded a chartered plane in San Antonio. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports. Bear County Sheriff Javier Salazar said he submitted certification to the federal government to ensure the people flown to Martha's Vineyard can stay in the U.S. while an investigation is conducted. The case is being investigated as unlawful restraint. Salazar said only those who potentially committed crimes in Bear County are considered suspects. While suspects have been identified, none have been named by his office. The group of about 50 people, mostly from Venezuela, were flown under false pretenses. They were told by a woman identified as Perla they would have jobs waiting for them and were lied to about the destination. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis took credit for the flights, which have been decried by Democrats and civil rights activists as a political stunt. I'm Joey Palacios in San Antonio. 
You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A report from the state auditor's office shows the state is not paying cities and towns for programs the legislature mandated to the tune of $1.26 billion. More now from WBUR's Dave Faniff. Auditor Suzanne Bump says most of the shortfall is in state aid for education, school transportation, and special education assistance. Bump says historically the legislature passes new programs and does not continue funding previous programs at the levels needed. It does call for a reshuffling of priorities, but I do think that making good on historic commitments is important to building public trust in government. Um, I think foundationally, that's a good place to start. The Senate president is not commenting on the report. The House Speaker has not responded to a request for comment. But 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff. Advocates for seniors in Massachusetts say there's help on the way for people on Social Security. A cost-of-living adjustment will hike benefits by 8.7 percent next year. Jessica Constantino is the director of advocacy for AARP Massachusetts. She says this means the average retiree in the state will get $140 more per month. 38% of Massachusetts residents who are 65 and over rely on Social Security for 90% of their income. That's one in four Social Security retirees here in Massachusetts alone. This will help. This will definitely help them. 1.3 million people in the state are on Social Security. The city of Boston plans to build a new community center in Dorchester within the next three years. It'll be the first center of its kind in the Grove Hall neighborhood. Justice Porter is a junior at Jeremiah Burke High School. She hopes this center will help people she knows who have emotional and academic needs. And they just close it up, they bottle up, they don't speak about it. And that cannot happen at all. It affects us as adults as we're growing up. It is horrible. And this community center would help us not only grow up from babies to adults, but it would help us for the rest of our lives. The center will be built on a vacant lot across from Jeremiah Burke High School. UMass Dartmouth will formally inaugurate its new chancellor today. Mark Fuller was previously the dean of the Eisenberg School of Business at UMass Amherst. He's served as interim chancellor of the Dartmouth campus since January. Fuller is also a first-generation college graduate. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum in person on October 24th. Hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. The Celtics play their final preseason game tonight. They'll visit the Toronto Raptors. The regular season begins on Tuesday. In your forecast, cloudy, windy, and rainy today with a low around 63. Tonight, it'll fall to the low 50s, and skies should clear overnight to make way for a sunny Saturday with a high near 68. Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 66. It's 67 degrees right now in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington. The House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol wants answers from Donald Trump. 
This is a question about accountability to the American people. He must be accountable. He is required to answer for his actions. He's required to answer to those police officers who put their lives and bodies on the line to defend our democracy. That's committee chair Benny Thompson of Mississippi during a hearing that closed with the panel unanimously voting to subpoena the former president's testimony and documents. Yesterday's hearing summed up a year and a half long investigation that found former President Trump pushed the big lie that the election was stolen, even though he knew he lost, that he pressured state officials and his own vice president to overturn the results, and that he summoned a violent mob to the Capitol to stop the peaceful transfer of power. We're joined now by one of the nine January 6th committee members, Democratic Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So, Congressman, let's start with that big question. Will Trump comply with the subpoena? Well, of course, uh, that's going to be up to him, although uh, we've talked to more than a thousand people now, uh, and the vast majority of people that we've uh, contacted or subpoenaed uh, have recognized that this is uh, both a legal duty and also a civic opportunity. And many people have told us that they have felt it's their patriotic obligation to come forward to share whatever knowledge they have with the committee as we investigate this worst mass violent domestic assault on Congress in our history. But have so, his lawyers indicated that he will or has there been any indication that he'll comply? Well, remember, yesterday we just voted to direct the chairman Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, render a subpoena to Donald Trump. It hasn't right. happened yet. He hasn't sent it. So we've not been uh, in touch with them, at least as far as I know. Um, but again, you know, before we, I, if everybody wants to talk about, well, will he do it or will he, won't do it? And what would we do in that case and so on? And right. I just want everybody to focus for a moment, at least, on uh, what you would do wherever you are. If you had information about this attack, would you come forward and talk to the representatives of the American people or would you blow it off like Steve Bannon did, who now has been convicted of contempt of Congress uh, for simply thinking that he's somehow above and beyond the law? Well, on that note, what would you do if former President Trump rebuffs your subpoena? Would it be a similar situation? Well, I mean, that's the, the hypothetical I don't really want to entertain at this mm -hmm. point, just because I want people to focus on what it means for a former president of the United States to say, well, obviously I was at the center of these events. According to everything we found, he was the driving factor behind every element of the assault on democracy, but I'm not gonna participate. Now in the criminal context, we couldn't, con we couldn't even comment on his refusal to testify because of the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. But in the civil context, which is what we're in now, we can comment all we want. And in fact, Justice Scalia for a unanimous Supreme Court repeatedly found we can derive adverse inferences towards the information he has if he refuses to come forward. So essentially, he's assenting to our establishment of his central culpability in staging the coup against America and the violent insurrection if he doesn't show up. But look, you know, what, what can Congress do? We can seek criminal sanctions as we successfully did against Steve Bannon. We can seek civil sanctions. But not sanctions. Mark Meadows, the, chief of, the former chief of staff. That, that's right, because he complied substantially before Trump pressured him to disengage mm. from the process. Um, 
we, we can go to court to ask for a civil uh, order enforcing the subpoena, and that leads to civil contempt, people being held behind bars until they decide to comply. That's the kind of contempt where the courts have said you hold the keys to your own freedom. All you have to do is meet the subpoena and then you can get out of jail. Or we could use um, the inherent power of subpoena uh, and enforcement of subpoena that Congress itself has. Now, that hasn't been used for decades, but the Supreme Court, again, has been emphatic that Congress has the power to enforce its subpoenas the same way that uh, courts do. So, um, I, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, we don't think this is just some kind of uh, poetic exercise. Uh, we really want and expect Donald Trump to come forward uh, and to answer a whole bunch of questions we have about this attack on our constitutional order. Now, so much about this moment is unprecedented or feels unprecedented, the attack on the Capitol and many things that have come after. So it feels weird, strange to say, well, the subpoena also unprecedented. But I wonder if this also raises risks. There have already been issues around separation of powers raised. Is the risk of issuing the subpoena worth worth uh, worth the further division of the nation, frankly? Well, um, multiple presidents and seven former presidents have come to testify before Congress. Um, several of them voluntarily, uh, at least two of them that we could find John Tyler and John Quincy Adams came forward under a subpoena. And uh, John Quincy Adams said, um, you know, we don't have a title or an office of former president of the United States the way a lot of countries do in their constitution. He said a former president is just a citizen. And uh, of course, citizen is the highest office in the land we have, and those of us who aspire and attain to public office are nothing but the servants of the people. So um, his being a former president does not entitle him to skip out on the law. In fact, multiple people, including his own lawyers in the impeachment trial, uh, were saying uh, during the impeachment, well, the real way to deal with Donald Trump is if there were crimes committed to subpoena him later or to render um, him a I'm simple... going to just interrupt you. In the final few seconds, I just want to ask, does the work of the committee matter if a large swath of this country doesn't care or trust the investigation? Just a few seconds. Well, I think increasingly people do trust it. And the work of the committee is essential because in a democracy, people have the right to the truth and the facts about their own government. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a member of the Select House Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Thank you so much. You bet. Ukraine says it needs more of just about everything to fight Russia. Precision-guided rockets, tanks, and training for its soldiers. The U.K. has provided more military instruction than nearly any other country. It's put nearly 6,000 Ukrainian civilians through basic training on British soil. NPR's Frank Langford has a story. It doesn't look like the sweeping wheat fields and vast blue skies of Ukraine. But for now, the rolling hills here in southern England will have to do. Ukrainian trainees in body armor and camouflage race to sandbags and fire at metal targets. Heavy machine gun fires overhead as an armored fighting vehicle roars back and forth. 
The trainees study everything from weapons handling and assault tactics to treating battlefield injuries and clearing enemy trenches. One new soldier, Sarangi engineer nicknamed Panda, says live fire exercises like this will help prepare him for the fight back home. The most important thing that the British side gave to us was learning how to look after your psychological state and build your psychological defense for when you have to go onto the battlefield. We learn through hearing things like explosions that are happening around. We learn how to not fear them anymore like when we were civilians. Panda wears an olive green face mask to hide his identity. The Ukrainian army has insisted the soldiers remain anonymous. The trainees come from all walks of life. They included a lawyer, a builder, and a dance choreographer. Turning ordinary people into soldiers is crucial for Ukraine, which, despite recent gains, remains outnumbered on the battlefield. These aspiring soldiers have come to England because training large numbers of people back home is too dangerous. Waves of Russian missiles have pounded a military training base close to Ukraine's western border near Poland. That attack in early March killed at least 35 people. Here, the atmosphere is far more relaxed. Trainers teach in open fields. Standing next to an easel overlooking a herd of cattle, a British soldier quizzes the trainees on Russian weapons. Anyone remember? What caliber rockets is fires? He displays photos of tanks and armored fighting vehicles, trying to help his students identify friend and foe on the battlefield. The trainer says it helps to know where the engine is located in each vehicle. Looking at thermal sites, some vehicles are going to look harder to identify than others. In other words, know the engine location, know the vehicle. One of the hardest things for soldiers to master is marksmanship. Surin Ball, a warrant officer class two, explains. We'd had mixed results to start off with, but we got them to a standard eventually, purely because of coaching. From what I know, they haven't handled weapons before. Ball says a key was giving soldiers one-on-one -on -one attention. He adds the trainees were eventually able to hit the target around 80% of the time from various firing positions. In the United Kingdom, all new soldiers typically go through a 14-week basic training course, but the British are giving the Ukrainians just five weeks. When I asked a trainer about this, a military press officer intervened. And if you could have them for more time, how much extra time would you like with them? Well, that's not a question. Why not? It's a subjective. It's subjective? Mm -hmm. It's not our decision. Indeed, it's the choice of the Ukrainian military, which remains desperate to get new troops onto the battlefield, to replenish the many thousands who've already died or been injured. One veteran Ukrainian soldier told me he thinks new recruits still need at least 10 weeks of training. But he added, in this reality, it's a race against time. Frank Langford, NPR News in Southern England. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on WBOR's Morning Edition, the ongoing fallout from the leaked tape of Los Angeles City Councilors making racist comments. It's 719. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again. ICABoston.org. 
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Some fog this morning, also cloudy and windy with a good chance of rain and maybe a thunderstorm. It'll be in the 60s, falling to the 50s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and near 70, mostly sunny on Sunday and in the mid-60s. It's 67 degrees in Boston. A heads up for riders on the T this weekend. Shuttle buses will replace trains on the red line between Alewife and Harvard. That'll happen all day tomorrow and Sunday. Also, the project that's halted service on the D branch of the Green Line should wrap up this weekend. Service is expected to resume between Riverside and Kenmore Square on Monday. It's 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the American Lung Association and Pfizer working together to raise awareness of pneumococcal pneumonia. Information on adult vaccinations for pneumococcal pneumonia is at lung.org slash pneumococcal. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Los Angeles politics is in turmoil. The acting city council president canceled today's meeting, saying the body cannot do business until two members, Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon, resign. Both can be heard in recently leaked audio of a conversation that included racist and derogatory comments. Many of them were made by former council president Nuri Martinez, who has already resigned. Also heard is Ron Herrera, who stepped down as head of the L.A. County Federation of Labor. They've all apologized, but critics say it's not enough. Protesters shut down a city council meeting earlier this week. The scandal has exposed racial divides in this multicultural city, as we'll hear from our next guests. L.A. Times columnist Erica Smith recently wrote an op-ed about those divisions, and University of Southern California professor Manuel Pastor co-authored a study called Black Experiences of Latinization and Loss in South Los Angeles. Now, in it, Pastor explains the area's demographic shift from about 80 percent black residents in 1970 to a now majority of Latinos. There really were tensions and conflicts around jobs, in schools, in communities. But that as time went on, people began to find their way to one another in terms of organizing. And that there's been a tremendous access of black, brown, solidarity building, community bridging, power building that has occurred over the last 30, 40 years. With a lot of that happening in South LA, but a lot of that being citywide. And so one of the things that I think is perhaps the most tragic about what's been happening with the revelation of these racist comments by four Latino leaders is 
that decades and decades of solidarity building were eroded, really, in a very short amount of time. And so, Erica, so on the decades of uh, coalition building, uh, you write how this story has shattered what you describe as the narrative of Los Angeles as, quote, being some sort of multicultural mecca where black and brown people build alliances to work together in solidarity towards solving problems. Erica, was that narrative ever true, you think? Or maybe that alliance was just not as strong as people thought or hoped? I do think there is, you know, a sense that we do get along here. And I think that some of that, you know, as Dr. Pastor was just saying, has been shattered. I think that there's been a lot of work that has been done that people did believe that alliance, particularly between Black and Brown, Black and Latino communities did exist. I think that this recording has shown that obviously things aren't as great as we thought they were. Um, and maybe it's kind of opened our eyes a little bit to the work that still needs to be done, where maybe a lot of people thought that the hardest part kind of was over. And one of the uh, components, the political component, uh, Erica, about this whole story is that the Latino leaders in that audio recording were attempting to consolidate Latino power. Now, I, I saw a stat in your piece that Latinos make up half of LA's population, but less than a third of LA's 15 council seats. Is uh, seemingly a lack of fair representation, according to those numbers, maybe a legitimate concern for Latinos in LA? I don't think anybody disputes the fact that Black people are, to a certain extent, are overrepresented on the city council and the Latino people are underrepresented. I think the question goes back to how do you go about achieving higher numbers and equity and do you have to do it at the expense of Black people? And I think that that was what came across on that tape. We've always kind of moved forward as if we just had Black and brown alliances and we're we're moving together in equity but you know these very real concerns haven't really been addressed recently Manuel, you interviewed black residents of south la to get their feelings about their spaces shrinking or in many cases just plain evaporating what did you hear from them well we heard a number of things we heard people who were deeply concerned about the growing latino presence both because it changed the language spoken in the neighborhood imagine if you're a parent in a school in South LA, you're a black parent, and all of a sudden the vast majority of kids are Latino, and the language that's spoken at the PTA or when the principal is speaking to parents is Spanish, and someone is actually translating into English it to you in a space that was hard fought. You know, African Americans struggled to be able to gain a foothold in South Los Angeles, and in particular various parts of South Los Angeles that had been ruled off limits to black home seekers through uh, racially restrictive covenants, redlining, and a number of racist real estate practices. So this is hard fought space. On the other hand, you also heard, even at a very grassroots level, people saying, we face the same struggles in terms of job quality, unaffordable housing, environmental problems, schools that need significant improvement so that our kids can go to college. And you found a lot of people in Black-only spaces talking about the need to form alliances with Latinos. So I think there is definitely some sense of resentment that is there. And there's also some ground on which coalitions can continue to be built. Just wondering how 
can a shared sense of space be created in places where black and brown people are literally sharing the same physical space? I mean, sharing being economically marginalized, over-policed, underrepresented in big issues that affect both of them. Well, I mean, I think it starts really with what's happening on right now. I think right now we're seeing a coming together of people from various different races and ethnicities that are frankly just outraged at what has happened. And, you know, it's brought about a unity that probably and frankly wouldn't have happened if this offensive recording had not been released. And so I do think there is this renewed effort to kind of rebuild these alliances. But I also think it starts on the streets. You know, as, as the professor said a little while ago, I mean, as black and brown communities, we interact all the time. Granted, you know, not necessarily equally, but we do. And so it's not like we're going to escape each other. And so we have to find a way to work together, to live together as we're already doing it, to, you know, to do it peacefully in a way that I think is productive for everybody in Los Angeles. Los Angeles Times columnist Erica Smith and USC sociology professor Manuel Pastor, my thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead on Morning Edition, the key drawback to renewable energy like solar power is that, as yet, there's no way to store it, so there's no energy to use when, say, the sun isn't out. San Diego has a plan to solve that problem with an old style of technology called a water battery. It's 729. The Boston Book Festival is coming soon, Friday, October 28th, and Saturday, October 29th. WBUR hosts will be there. Get details at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. At Peabody Essex Museum, with after-hours events, spooky tales, films, and more this October. Info at PEM.org slash Halloween. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO Secretary General says any use of tactical nuclear weapons by Russia in Ukraine would have serious consequences. Speaking today in Brussels, Jens Stoltenberg did not say what those consequences might be. In Donbass, Russian forces are continuing to advance. Villa Marx has more from London. The UK's Defence Intelligence Organisation tweeted that Russia's troops had made, quote, tactical advances into Bakhmut, but the greatest local gains in territory since July had involved the private military contractor known as the Wagner Group. Russia's overall progress in the Donbass remained slow, the UK said, thanks to Ukrainian pressure plus limited munitions and manpower. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol wants to hear from former President Donald Trump. NPR's Windsor Johnston says the panel voted unanimously to subpoena Trump at yesterday's public hearing. The panel laid out further evidence that then-President Donald Trump knew that he had lost the election but went ahead with efforts to overturn the results. The committee also presented documents provided by the Secret Service that showed the agency was warned about potential violence in the weeks leading up to the insurrection. Video footage showed congressional leaders, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, scrambling to secure the Capitol as the attack was unfolding. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
There will be a U.S. Senate hearing in Boston this morning focusing on the problems with the MBTA. The head of the transit agency and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu are among those scheduled to testify. WBUR's Dan Guzman has a preview. Senator Elizabeth Warren called today's hearing to grill tea leaders on the federal oversight report, which found an overworked and under-resourced transit agency. Our hearing is about the importance of the management of the MBTA and having a clear vision for what it's trying to accomplish. Warren says having a reliable MBTA system will benefit more than just the Boston area. This is part of how we keep the economy of Massachusetts strong, how we deal with a growing population, and how we make this a place that people want to live. The hearing begins at 11. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. The Boston Marathon is considering changing its name when it finds a new sponsor. John Hancock is ending its sponsorship of the race next year. It kept its logos and names out of marathon marketing, but a new company may want its name in the title of the Boston Marathon. Nearly all major international marathons have title sponsors. Organizers for the marathon tell the Boston Globe that having a local sponsor for the race would be ideal. The city of Peabody is betting on itself with a new children's museum. Executive Director Allie Haydock says the museum will be a city department under current Mayor Edward Betancourt. Which is a unique model to have a city managing a department for a museum, but um, he really sees the value of, of strengthening businesses downtown. The city will pay into the North Shore Children's Museum's rent, salaries, and utilities. Special programming would be funded through private donations. The museum's grand opening is tomorrow. It's 7.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. There's preseason basketball tonight with the Celtics visiting the Toronto Raptors and looking ahead to the weekend. On Sunday, the Patriots will visit the Cleveland Browns. In your forecast, overcast and gusty winds today with a good chance of rain and thunderstorms. Temperatures will top out around 70. Tonight, those fall to the low 50s and skies clear overnight. Then a great weekend. Sunny and nearly 70 on Saturday. Mostly sunny and in the mid-60s on Sunday. It's 67 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Mexico is trying to come to terms with a data leak of more than 4 million documents from inside the military that has exposed some of the country's closest kept secrets. NPR has obtained the documents, which includes everything from the health of the president to corruption among Mexico's military. NPR's Ader Peralta joins us now from Mexico City. Ader, let's start with what was leaked. What have we learned about that so far? 
We've learned a ton about the about the military. I mean, one of the big uh, ones is that President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador had to be airlifted to a hospital with a heart problem. Another document alleges that a top law enforcement officer was taking $250,000 a month to protect the cartel. Um, but above all, uh, this has revealed a ton about Mexico's military. We've learned that despite being tasked with fighting the drug war, some of its soldiers sold weapons to the cartels. Uh, we've learned that they suggest that the military suggests legislation, that the military keeps statistics on murders, and that they run surveillance on airports. We found that they keep dossiers on politicians and environmental activists, anarchists, and feminists. In one email, we found what a military official calls a counterintelligence operation against the bricklayers at a government project. Um, there are millions of documents, as you said, but I think what is clear and what we find is that Mexico's military is involved in every major aspect of this country. So what do we know about the group that leaked it? So they call themselves the Wakamaya uh, or the Macaws, and they're anonymous, but they say that they're uh, anti-colonial, anti-capitalist environmentalists, um, and they've done similar things uh, in other countries. But this hack is huge. Six terabytes of data uh, taken from the email servers of the Mexican Ministry of Defense, and it's one of the biggest leaks in history. What has the government said about this? Because I got to admit, Ader, I'm, I'm not too shocked. Well, what's been the reaction? President Lopez Obrador uh, has admitted that the documents were real, but he shrugged it off. The defense minister actually refused an invitation by parliament to testify about this. But what's important to note is that this is coming at a time when this president has given the military a lot more power. And it comes uh, when, through other reports, we've learned that the military was also involved in the killing of 43 college students in 2014. Yet the president continues to tell the Mexican people that the only institution that can be trusted it is the military. I spoke to political analyst Denise Dresser, and like you, she says that while none of this is a surprise to those who were paying attention, um, it's still about uh, an institution that was supposed to fix things. And that's why these leaks are so hard to process. Let's listen. There's still an element, I think, of false hope that if we continue to rely on the Mexican military, eventually some semblance of peace will emerge. Uh, what the leaks reveal is that perhaps there's already a level of collusion that can't be dismantled. So the military, she says, that presidents and the Mexicans had put their faith in has turned almost all-powerful, and it may just be as corrupt as the, as the rest of the Mexican state, and that's really hard to come to terms with, she says. NPR's Ader Peralta in Mexico City. Ader, thanks. Thank you, A. The electrical grid of the future, one that relies on the sun and the wind, will also need ways to store that electricity for when we need it. And it's reviving interest in an old approach to storing power, a kind of battery that uses gravity and water. From Lakeside, California, Dan Charles reports. Northeast of San Diego, up a steep winding road and on the other side of a locked gate, there's a place that could store a huge amount of electricity. Wow, this is so cool. I'm on top of a 300-foot-tall dam looking out at two and a half square miles of water. And that's the San Vicente Reservoir. Nina Kuzmik is deputy director of engineering at the San Diego Water Authority, which runs this place. The lake is gorgeous, surrounded by steep, barren mountainsides. But Kuzmik did not bring me here for the view. Remember what happened on September 6th, she says. 
everybody in the state of California, I believe, got a text message at 5.30 in the evening to turn off their appliances. California's electrical grid was hitting its limit because the sun was going down and so was all of the state's solar power. And yet earlier that same day, there was so much solar power available in California that the grid couldn't take it all. Enough electricity to power a small city was turned away, wasted, because they couldn't store it for later when they really needed it. We have a problem if we're going to have these continuous heat waves. We need something. We need a facility that will store energy so we can't, we don't have to turn off our appliances. Well, the San Diego Water Authority is hoping maybe a decade from now, it could take all that extra solar power in the middle of the day and use it to pump water from this reservoir through big underground pipes up into a new, smaller reservoir, a thousand feet higher. The upper reservoir would be um, up behind those mountains here that you see in front of you. And then when the sun goes down and they really need the power, they'd open a valve and the force of eight million tons of water falling back downhill would spin turbines and generate electricity. It's a water battery. Big water batteries like this, called pumped hydro facilities, do exist already in dozens of places around the U.S. Many were built to store electricity that nuclear power plants generated during the night. Malcolm Wolf, president and CEO of the National Hydropower Association, says nobody's built a big new one in more than a generation. But in just the last several years, 92 projects have come into the development pipeline. Pumping water has some advantages over batteries like the ones in electric cars. It can store a lot of power. That San Diego project could supply 100,000 homes for eight hours or so. It doesn't require hard-to-find battery materials like cobalt and lithium. And the plants last for a century. The problem, at least according to some people, is it's hard to find places to build such things. That is a myth that I am working hard to try to uh, disabuse folks of. Wolf says you don't even need a river for pumped storage. Just two reservoirs, one high, one low, reusing the same water over and over in a closed loop. Kelly Catlett, who's director of hydropower reform at American Rivers, an environmental advocacy group, says this technology is certainly worth considering. There are good pump storage projects, and there are not-so-good pump storage projects. Her group won't support projects that build new dams on streams and rivers, disrupting sensitive aquatic ecosystems. But the plan for that reservoir in San Diego... That looks like something we could potentially support. She says this is a chance to do better now and make sure that power captured from falling water really is clean. For NPR News, I'm Dan Charles in Lakeside, California. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, as the world struggles to recover from the COVID pandemic, the International Monetary Fund is playing a crucial role. We have a refresher on how the IMF works and what it does. And in our next hour, President Biden is setting out on his biggest midterm campaign outing yet. But compared to past presidents, he actually hasn't been on the road that much. 
Some patchy fog this morning, then a cloudy, windy, and rainy Friday today. It'll warm up to near 70, then fall back to the low 60s tonight. Clearing overnight, and tomorrow will be sunny and near 70. Sunday, mostly sunny and mid-60s. It's 67 degrees in Boston at 743. WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Now in business news, the parent company of Shaw's and Star Market is considering merging with another grocery giant. Several media reports say Albertsons is in talks to form a single company with Kroger. The deal would create the largest supermarket company in the U.S. Critics say a potential deal could reduce competition and raise prices. A former parking lot in Boston's Fort Point neighborhood will soon be turned into a development with more than 300 housing units. Many of those will be income-restricted or designated as artist housing. The area along A Street will also include nearly four acres of open space. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling our biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. Join Sarah Bloom Raskin and Rep. Jamie Raskin in conversation with Meghna Chakrabarty at Evening with Series on October 17th at the JFK Library. Tickets at CERES.org slash WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. The International Monetary Fund, or IMF, is bracing for a challenging time amid signs of a global slowdown. The organization and its almost 200 member countries have been meeting in Washington this week to address this uncertainty. But what does the IMF do exactly? Adrian Ma and Patty Hirsch from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain. The International Monetary Fund is a bit like one of those old pieces of furniture that you've had in your family for ages. You know, it was in your grandma's house and then it was in your mom's house and now it's in your house. And it's a great piece, but you don't really know that much about it. The IMF has been part of the furniture since 1944. Originally, it was a kind of regulatory sort of body that would police the system. This is Rex Ghosh. He's the official historian of the IMF. To make sure everyone played by the rules of the game. The game, of course, was the international financial system. And the IMF was basically given three tasks to sort of police this system. First, it had to monitor the health of member countries. Second, it had to provide training and technical assistance. And finally, it was supposed to lend money to countries when they needed it. But the most important role envisioned by the IMF's founders was the monitoring function. Every year, the IMF visits every one of its member nations. Daniel Bradlow is a professor in the Center for Human Rights at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. He says these so-called Article 4 visits are a bit like an annual physical. If you think of it in terms of health, they'd say maybe you need to change your diet, start exercising more, and that improves your health. And that's sort of what the IMF likes to think it's doing. And to maybe stretch the metaphor a little more, the money that the IMF gives out is kind of like medicine, the, the good medicine, that is. But... It's contingent on countries following doctors' orders. The IMF is not a project lender. When the IMF gives money to a country, it goes just into the budget of the government and it can be used 
for almost any purpose. Of course, just like a needy student who gets a big birthday check from an overbearing aunt, if a country wants to come back to the well for more IMF money down the line, it would be well advised to follow the IMF's policies. Countries only come to the fund when they have an external deficit or debt problem. And so almost by definition, they're going to have to do if you like, austerity policies. Basically, we're talking about slashing budgets, yanking subsidies, cutting spending. This philosophy of deploying austerity as a response to economic crises has given the IMF kind of a bad name in the past. Austerity isn't the only reason the IMF is a somewhat controversial organization. It's been accused of bias, of a lack of transparency, of undermining democracy, and of charging interest rates that only exacerbate the troubles of borrower countries. But... Daniel says the organization is changing. It's recognized that its policies from the 1980s and 1990s has had very devastating and negative effects in many countries, uh, particularly in Africa. The IMF was designed to keep the global financial system spinning on its axis. But you can kind of see why this is kind of a mission impossible. The organization has to make controversial decisions about which of almost... 200 member countries it's going to lend to and how much money they're going to get and under what conditions. But it's been 78 years now. The global financial system is still spinning and the IMF is still part of the furniture. So I guess it must be doing something right. Adrian Ma, Patty Hirsch, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is NPR News. There's another hour coming up here on Morning Edition, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here to tell us what's on deck. Good morning, Tiziana. I wait all week to be able to tell you, <laughs> happy Friday. Happy Friday! Friday <laughs> is on deck, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we have a good show today, um, kind of food for the brain and then food for the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, so the brain is question one. We'll do a debate on question one, sometimes called, uh, the you know, labeled the fair share amendment, sometimes also called the millionaire's tax. Mm-hmm. Just very quickly, what it does is if anybody earns more than a million dollars in a given year, there's an extra 4% tax mm-hmm. on the money over a million dollars. So we're going to debate the issues on this. Will it get used the way it's supposed to? What will the economic impact pro and con be in the state? And we'll dive into all of that. And then the folks who say it's just not fair. Uh, what else? That's right. Um, so then Wally's Cafe, the jazz club, mm-hmm. around since 1947, uh, when it was founded, the first black-owned jazz club uh, in Boston. It has been an important business in Boston ever since. Mm-hmm. Closed during the pandemic. We talked to them then. They've reopened. And going into the weekend, we are going to feature Wally's and play some great jazz. Oh, have a great time. Thanks. We will. Thanks, Tiziana. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Klaviyo, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash NPR. I'm Peter O'Dowd. In Arizona, Democrats believe democracy itself is on the ballot in November. We've got ourselves a situation that is 
very, very, very dangerous uh, for the survival of this republic. And that's not hyperbole, that's real. The leading Republican candidate for the state's top election official is an election denier. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Overcast with a good chance of rain and near 70 today. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston at 751. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. The writer Anna Bodkin defines this moment right now that we are all collectively living as a bright, unbearable reality. I think of our planet and of our humanity as in a state of dire, urgent need when we need to look at our condition head on if we want to not just survive but become better. Bright Unbearable Reality is also the title of Bodkin's new book of essays. In her writings, she's searching for what connects human beings across continents when one in seven people has left their birthplace. At a time when the planet is consumed by violence between humans and by humans on the world that sustains them, Bodkin is searching for hope. Her first stop on that journey is a week-long walk in the Sahara Desert where sand washes away any trace of the generations of people that walk the same path. And then to the birthplace of humanity, Rift Valley in Ethiopia. I went to Ethiopia because the Afar Triangle in the Rift Valley is believed to be one of the places where humans were born. And I had also thought of Ethiopia in the current sense. It's the place from which hundreds of thousands of people migrate, either via Sudan or via Somalia, to uh, look for more prosperous life in Europe or in the Middle East. There was, for me, an overlay of a very, very ancient migration and a very, very contemporary migration. And I had planned that trip for months, and then... I arrived in Ethiopia the day uh, the World Health Organization declared uh, the pandemic. Yeah, there it is right in the middle of your trip. And you're right, my journey became a real-time passage through a world undergoing a dramatic and unprecedented remaking. And I also thought, here I am in this place where we began at a time when the entire world is thinking about ending. And also, I thought the last time all of us shared a story, were affected by the same story, was when we were here. When we were a small community of early, early humans uh, or you know, pre-humans, and we shared the same context. And this is the second time or the first time since then that all of humanity shares the same context knowingly. I didn't know the origin of the word migrant until I read it in your book. Can you talk about that word and where it came from? So the word migrant entered the English language uh, as an adjective for animals that move uh, in the 17th century. And it wasn't used for humans until 1807 when a minister in New Hampshire talked about the colonial history of New Hampshire and used it to describe human movement. So its origin is with animals. That is a very interesting and kind of queasy-making knowledge because 
very often the settled today treat the migrant as less than human. And even the language we use for migrants, we talk about animals, we talk about humans snaking in line to enter a camp. There is still this suspicion of the migrant. But also the way it is used, sometimes almost as a dirty word in and of itself in the political landscape, right? Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of myself as a migrant. I'm a migrant. But I hadn't thought of myself in, in, as a migrant uh, when I first came to the United States in 2004 until I was visiting friends in Dallas and there was a program to gather oral histories of migrants. And my friend said, you should go. And I thought, oh, wow, that's me. And then I thought, oh, wow, I'm also infected with this stereotype. Because in my mind at the time, migrant was also already somehow a deficiency. You also spend a lot of time looking at panoramic images of people on the move. What is it from above? What do you learn from looking from that perspective, that lens? Um, I learn about our remove. And again, it probably feeds into the conversation of how we treat migrants and how we treat survivors or victims of catastrophes. Aerial imagery is often made by drones, and today it is often made by the same drones that deliver death. Yeah. So that's something to pause and think about. But another mm. thing to pause and think about is, why do we want to see these images? What is this strange voyeuristic requirement that we have so that we can see the scope and yet not be immediately touched by it? this desire to know and at the same time desire to know not in an impersonal way. Yeah. I mean, to be so far away, you don't have to see the individual person that you're watching move or that you're killing. Exactly. Or both. Or both. Or both. When we started talking, you said that you were looking for hope for uh, what connects people did you feel like you found that? Well, Leila, you know, I don't think it's a book of answers. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's definitely a book of questions. And it's a book of truths. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for reading it this way. Um, I think what I did find was moments of hope. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like looking at a bird. Maybe the bird won't tell you anything. Most likely it won't, but you can look at it and it's beautiful. And there is something to hold on to there. And maybe the missing of the people you've left or missing people you have lost is terrible. But, you know, the wages of dying is love. You, you also recognize that you're capable of, of that missing, that you're capable of that affection, of that attachment. I think the hope for me is that we are capable of these we're capable of tenderness. We're capable of compassion. Anna Bodkin's new book is called Bright, Unbearable Reality. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez.
A windy, cloudy, and rainy day today, but for some wonderful weekend weather. It'll be near 70, and there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Down to the low 50s tonight with clearing skies, then a sunny Saturday near 70. Sunday will be mostly sunny and in the mid-60s. It's 67 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm midday host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump says the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is dividing the country by voting to issue him a subpoena. It's Friday, October 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the White House rebukes longtime ally Saudi Arabia over that country's move to slash global oil production. The optics of it were terrible because it does coincide with the proximity of the U.S. elections, with inflation concerns, and with the war in Ukraine. Also, families of those killed in the 2018 Parkland, Florida school attack are angry about a jury's decision to spare the life of the shooter. And I talk with Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren about a rare congressional hearing she's holding in Boston today on problems at the T. This is about bringing in the leaders of the MBTA to say basically, What's gone wrong and why is it you guys still have your jobs? Cloudy, rainy and windy today in the 60s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House January 6th panel has voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump. The lawmakers allege Trump was the driving force behind the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol and orchestrated the big lie, falsely claiming the election was stolen. Maryland Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin is on the House panel and says the lawmakers are serious about questioning Trump. I'm hopeful that, you know, we don't think this is just some kind of uh, poetic exercise. Uh, We really want and expect Donald Trump to come forward uh, and to answer a whole bunch of questions we have about this attack on our constitutional order. He spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. Trump responded on his social media account yesterday, insulting the House panel. He's promising a further response today. President Biden continues his travels on the West Coast today. He'll campaign in Oregon for the Democratic gubernatorial candidate. This is a tight race with the Republican and independent candidates. Former Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton campaigned in San Francisco yesterday. From member station KQED, E. Okobi reports she's stumping for a measure protecting abortion rights in the California Constitution. Clinton moderated a panel discussion at San Francisco's flagship Planned Parenthood Clinic. Panel members included Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis, NARL Pro-Choice America President Minnie Timaraju, and Jody Hicks, President of Planned Parenthood California. Clinton warned Californians that attacks on their reproductive rights were, in fact, attacks on democracy. And that's why California has to be constantly standing up for our foundational values and freedoms and rights. Election Day in California is November 8th. Most registered voters have already received their mail-in ballots. For NPR News, I'm Io Kobe in San Francisco. More than two weeks after Hurricane Ian made landfall in southwest Florida, high waters are still receding in the state. 
From member station WMFE, Amy Green reports on one neighborhood where the flooding has swamped the only road in and out, stranding some residents. The neighborhood is situated on Lake Harney, which is part of the St. Johns River. The river remains swollen as floodwaters continue to drain into the river on their way out to sea. Cindy Decker lives in the neighborhood with her husband and two of her children. She says the water began to rise a few days after the hurricane while she was out. When we came back in, I drive a Dodge Charger and it was very iffy getting back in. So at that point we decided that we're not, we can't leave anymore, not, not in the Charger anyways. Residents are coping by relying on each other. Some fear it will be Thanksgiving before the water fully recedes. For NPR News, I'm Amy Green in Orlando. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and MBTA General Manager Steve Poftag will be among those testifying today at a Senate subcommittee hearing on the T's management struggles. It'll be held here in Boston. Senator Elizabeth Warren called the hearing. She says she's worried about safety failures on the T. A Federal Transit Administration report linked some of those failures to overworked staff and a lack of safety oversight. A new report finds almost 16,000 students participated in Boston's summer learning program this year. That's about one-third of the city's overall enrollment. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, students showed their satisfaction with record high attendance. Roughly the same percentage of Boston students, 88%, attended normal school last year as went to far-flung community-run courses this summer. It's a vote of confidence in a stretched-out school year, something Boston's new superintendent, Mary Skipper, hopes will help the district's long-term recovery. Many students fell behind during the pandemic, academically and skills, social-emotionally. I don't think that's surprising, given how much school they missed. And that really means that the summer learning opportunities are more important than ever. The district drew on federal pandemic aid to make this summer's learning program the largest on record. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Harvard's endowment lost billions of dollars over the course of the last fiscal year, but it is still the largest university endowment in the world. It now sits at about $51 billion, despite losing $2 billion in the last year. Many other university endowments have lost money of late because of drops in the stock market. The MSPCA is welcoming dozens of animals rescued from Florida after Hurricane Ian. There are nearly 100 cats and nine dogs. Mike Kiley is director of Adoption Centers and Programs. He says the organization is sending a crew to Florida to help in rescue efforts. Our team is joining the ASPCA staff responders to provide basic care, medical care, whatever is needed to get those animals to a place where they're comfortable and safe, um, reunified, if they can be reunified. Kylie says the latest group of animals brought to Salem this week will undergo medical examinations and quarantine. Then they'll be available for fostering or adoption. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. It's the final preseason game for the Celtics tonight as they visit the Toronto Raptors. The regular season begins Tuesday night for the 
Cloudy, windy, and rainy today with a low around 63. Tonight, it'll fall to the low 50s and skies should clear overnight to make way for a sunny Saturday with a high near 68. Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 66. It's 67 degrees right now in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. President Biden heads to Oregon today, the third day of his biggest campaign trip yet ahead of the midterms. Where he's going and what he's talking about says a lot about how his party is approaching these upcoming elections. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith is traveling with Biden and joins us now from Los Angeles. Hi, Tam. Good morning. So you've been in Southern California with President Biden for a couple days. Before that, you were in Colorado. What has he been up to? He's touting administration policies and successes. In Colorado, he announced the designation of an important historic site, something that the state's Senator Michael Bennett has been pushing for. And Bennett is on the ballot in November and he's facing a tougher than expected race. But Colorado is an increasingly democratic state. And so a visit from the president could help get Democrats out to vote. Here in LA, he stopped into a taco shop with mayoral candidate Karen Bass. They also visited a big construction site where they're building a new metro line and talked about all the federal money going to that project and others. And, you know, this is another part of the country where the Democratic president is quite welcome. But little real talk, L.A. is also where Democrats come to hoover up campaign cash from wealthy donors. So last night, Biden appeared at a fundraiser with Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and it raised $5 million for congressional candidates. Mm. So a little more real talk. President Biden's approval ratings are underwater. You mentioned places where he's welcome. But aren't there a lot of places where a Biden visit could hurt the Democratic candidates? Absolutely. There are a lot of places where he isn't appearing with the Democratic candidates. Biden's on this trip out west right now. We flew over Nevada, where Senator Catherine Cortez Masto has a tough race on her hands. But Air Force One didn't make a stop. Biden's also not visiting Arizona, where Democrat Mark Kelly is trying to burnish his credentials as a moderate. And, you know, midterms are always rough for the president's party. I spoke with Liz Smith, a Democratic campaign consultant and author of Any Given Tuesday, and she told me that Biden and his team are smart to focus on fundraising and also small scale strategic stops where he actually can help. The history books show that an incumbent president is not a boost to their party in their midterms. So if Jesus Christ himself were an incumbent president, members of his political party would probably stiff arm him in a midterm election. Smith has informally advised Ohio Democratic Senate candidate Tim Ryan, who is one of those Democrats who's had some scheduling conflicts when Biden has visited his state. <laughs> um, and uh, she's glad, she said, that Biden isn't holding big campaign rallies in states with tight races like former President Barack Obama did in 2010 and former President Donald Trump is doing right now. Later today, Biden's heading to Oregon. Isn't that a safe Democratic state? 
Well, there's a three-way race for governor, and it's giving Democrats some heartburn. And in part, that's because there's an independent candidate who's a former Democrat. So Biden is going there to deliver a message to his party, essentially, to remind them that they are Democrats and that voting for an independent could split the vote and help the Republican. Biden yesterday was asked if we can expect to see him campaigning more in the coming weeks. And he said yes, but he didn't say whether that would include places like like Arizona and Nevada and Georgia, where there are those more competitive Senate races. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith is traveling with the president. Thanks, Tam. You're welcome. One of the most veteran broadcasters in sports is saying goodbye. Jaime Harring is retiring as the Spanish language voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He's held the job since 1959. The ball is going, it's going, kiss it goodbye. Sounds a lot prettier though when he says it. After 64 seasons, Jaime Harring has connected generations of Dodger fans. His name is synonymous with baseball, but it didn't start out that way. So I never saw a baseball in my life, a bat, or nothing like that until I came to this country. You see, Harring was born and raised in Ecuador, where soccer dominates. There, kids grew up wanting to play in the World Cup. The World Series, not so much. His first love was radio. He was introduced to it by his cousin Alfredo, who was an up-and-coming radio announcer in the city of Quito. Alfredo used to take Harring to live broadcasts around town. And I fell in love with radio when I was 10 years old. Then... A couple of years later, he said, Jaime, I think you have a microphonic voice. Alfredo took that nascent adolescent voice and helped Jaime develop it. He put me in a corner of a room to read every day about 30 minutes in the newspaper, El Comercio de Quito. He said, I am putting you in a corner because you will hear yourself the way that we hear you. That was my first lessons. And that reading paid off because within just a few years, Harin began a career of his own. And this is where his story will become something a lot more recognizable to many Americans. In 55, I decided to come to this country as an immigrant. You're then I started reading about Southern California. And I started reading about Los Angeles and how many Spanish-speaking people were here. So I said, that's the place where I have to go. Harring says there was so much opportunity in L.A. back then, just not in Spanish broadcasting. I took a job at a factory making metal fences. He says at the time, the city's lone Spanish radio station did not have any open positions. But more than that, the people at the radio station didn't like the way Harring spoke Spanish. They felt that his Ecuadorian accent would sound strange to Southern California's Mexican population. Now, you might think... It was the 1950s. It was a different time. Forty years later, when I was starting my career in L.A. doing traffic reports in Spanish, I, too, was told my Ecuadorian Spanish would not cut it in L.A. And just as I did, Harring realized that he needed to neutralize his accent. So I went to study Spanish at the Cambridge Street School in Los Angeles, 7 o'clock until 11 o'clock in the morning. I kept going until finally they gave me a job on weekends. Harring wound up becoming the news and sports director for KWKW just as baseball was about to be turned on its head. In 1958, the Brooklyn Dodgers left New York and moved to Los Angeles. And Harring, fluent in English and Spanish, but only barely conversational in baseball, became part of the first crew to call Dodger games in Spanish. He still remembers the big meeting with the station's general manager. 
Mr. William Beaton called all the announcers to his office. And he looked at me and said, I want you to be one of the two announcers. And so Haring sent himself to baseball boot camp. He attended minor league games around the city and read all the sports columns he can get his hands on. I'd listen to every single broadcasting on radio. So like in 59, I said, OK, I'm ready. And I started doing one inning first, then two innings, then three innings. Within a few years, Haring became a respected voice, had built an audience. It wasn't long before other teams took notice. When they saw the success of the Dodgers regarding the Latinos, they started wondering, what you have to do is hire a couple of announcers, hire a salesman to sell Spanish broadcasts, and it's a great, great way of making money. And that was where things were headed when a new mania took over baseball, Fernando Mania. set a National League rookie record pitching eight shutouts this year. Late in the 1980 season, the Mexican ball player Fernando Valenzuela was brought on to pitch for the Dodgers. Within a year, he was named Rookie of the Year and helped the Dodgers win the World Series. But more than that, he brought more Spanish speakers to the game. He created so many new baseball fans. It was unbelievable. People that didn't know baseball at all, so we had to teach them. And Haring went along for the ride because in addition to calling the games, Haring became Valenzuela's interpreter. Jaime Haring, ask him if he felt that the first three innings tonight when the Mets got the eight base runners on against him was the toughest stretch he's had so far since coming to the National League. Up to that day, I was very well known only in Southern California. But then when I had to travel with Fernando and be with him in front of the media, they knew about who Jaime Haring was in Chicago, in San Luis, in other cities. Since Haring's early days with the league, Latinos have become a real force in baseball. In 1955, just around 5% of all major league players were Latino, according to the Society for American Baseball Research. Today, more than a quarter of the players are Latinos. And you can see it in the stands, too. I was only 11 years old when Fernando Valenzuela broke through, but I remember noticing a lot more Spanish speakers at Dodger games. They'd have their transistor radios in their hand and to their ear to listen to Jaring's broadcast. Alex Padilla was among them. He grew up in the San Fernando Valley and now serves as California's first Latino U.S. Senator. Padilla grew up bilingual, but his parents only spoke Spanish. So in order to enjoy Dodger games as a family, they would all listen to Haring's voice narrate the action. It was smooth. It was so descriptive. Literally, you can close your eyes and just listen to him and know exactly what was happening on the field. But as a Latino, as a bilingual Latino, it was great to sort of be seen by his voice. In many respects, Haring's resume speaks for itself. He's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He's got his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And he's even received an honorary doctorate from Cal State University, Los Angeles. I have received many accolades, but what really fills my heart, people approach me, they stop me and say, Mr. Harin, thanks to you, I spend more time with my grandfather. Thanks to you, my father used to spend more time with me. We just wanted to thank you for that. When I sat down to interview Harin for this story, I had one final question for him. Is it really coming to an end? When I do my last broadcast, it will be my last, last, last intervention on, on a microphone. Seguro? Segurísimo. Segurísimo. 
a journey that started with reading the newspaper for 30 minutes a day in Quito, Ecuador, will come to an end three quarters of a century later in Los Angeles, when Jaime Jarrín retires as one of the greatest broadcasters of all time. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, disappointment among the families of the people killed in the 2018 Parkland, Florida shooting as a jury decides against the death penalty. It's 819. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. What does the Congressional January 6th Committee hope to hear from Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas? She was more than just a kook who was sending all of these messages to Mark Meadows, trying to get Trump and the White House to do all sorts of things to overturn the election. I think they want to show that her role was actually far more sophisticated than that. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, there's plenty of rain this morning, some of it heavy over the Cape and South Coast. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce says that's making the commute a wet and challenging one. Well, it certainly poured overnight, and we're still contending with the rain out there, unfortunately, for the drive. It's going to gradually taper off in most areas by midday to early afternoon. There may be a lingering shower, too, after that. Rain totals generally running one to two inches for many of us, with some locally higher amounts and localized flooding this morning. It's been gusty out there, too, though after the rain comes to an end, the wind will diminish very rapidly. Nonetheless, some pockets of damage. Our weekend is looking good, though. Saturday, sunshine, some clouds mixed in on Sunday, and highs near 70 both days. It's 66 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Japigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faudel. Families of those killed in the 2018 attack at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School are angry about a Florida jury's decision to spare the life of Nicholas Cruz, the shooter. The former student pleaded guilty to killing 17 students and staff members at the Parkland School and wounding 17 others. After a three-month trial... The jury recommended Cruz get a life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole rather than the death penalty. NPR's Greg Allen reports from Fort Lauderdale. There was stunned silence in the courtroom in Fort Lauderdale as Judge Elizabeth Scherer read the sentencing verdict for each of the 17 victims. For each one, the jury's sentence was life in prison. Many of the families wanted the death penalty. Tony Montalto, whose 14-year-old daughter Gina was one of those killed, called it a gut punch. 17 beautiful lives were cut short by murder. 
heinous, pre-planned, torturous murder. And the monster that killed them gets to live another day. In opting for life in prison, jurors indicated they were swayed by arguments made by Cruz's lawyers that he's, quote, a brain-damaged, broken, mentally ill person through no fault of his own. Defense attorneys made the case that Cruz's problems began before he was born, when his mother abused drugs and alcohol. They presented expert testimony that he suffers from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and that everyone from his adoptive mother to school counselors failed to get him the treatment he needed. On the verdict forms, jurors indicated those concerns outweighed aggravating factors, that Cruz premeditated and planned the murders, and that he carried them out in a heinous, atrocious, and cruel manner. Elon Aladef, whose daughter Alyssa died that day, said the sentence left him disgusted with the system. So that means that everyone that has a mental illness should go on a killing spree? That's what we're telling this society? That we're saying that's okay because you have a mental illness? The families had nothing but praise for the prosecution team, who they say made a strong case for the death penalty. Many of the families focused their anger and criticism on jurors, who they felt may have not been honest in the jury selection process. Every juror assured the court they could vote for the death penalty if it was appropriate. Alyssa Aladef's mother, Lori. What is the death penalty for, if not for the murder and killing of 17 people? Fred Guttenberg, whose daughter Jamie was one of those killed by Cruz, Whereas this verdict sends the wrong message on school safety. I think anyone planning a shooting right now um, sees that there's a path to avoid the death penalty where it does exist. And the death penalty does exist, by the way. As the families expressed their anger, Broward County's public defender, whose office represented Cruz, asked the community to respect the verdict. Amid the backlash, jury foreman Benjamin Thomas told Miami CBS4, one juror was a holdout for a life sentence. It really came down to a specific jury that, you know, he was mentally ill, and she didn't believe because he was mentally ill he should get the death penalty. Following the verdict, one of the jurors delivered a letter to the judge denying rumors that she'd made up her mind to vote for life before the trial started. The deliberations were very tense, she wrote, and some jurors became extremely unhappy once I mentioned I would vote for life. Jury foreman Thomas said eventually two other jurors joined her in rejecting the death penalty. Judge Scherer said next month she'll formally sentence Cruz to life in prison without possibility of parole. Greg Allen, NPR News, Fort Lauderdale. Time now for StoryCorps. Jack Baker and Michael McConnell are two names you probably never heard of. In the early 1970s, they wanted to get married, but same-sex marriage was not yet legal in Minnesota. Baker and McConnell sued the state and appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices declined to hear their case, but they managed to get married anyway after Baker and McConnell found a legal loophole. Our marriage was the first such union to be recorded in public files of any civil government, and, and it became the first legal gay marriage. Jack and Michael came to StoryCorps to remember their perseverance and how their relationship began. I was at a Halloween barn party in Norman, Oklahoma, and my close and very dear friend said, there's someone here I want you to meet. You two were destined for each other. I kind of rolled my eyes and he said, no, really? At the time I was looking for the four T's, tall, thin, and 23. I was 24 and thought perhaps time had passed me by, but there was the four T's standing right there in front of me. And so I was quite excited. We talked and chatted and he was one of the f people, few people that had a brain in his head, so 
I wanted to see more of him after that. My mother, she had told me that I have the same rights as anybody else. And so when Jack asked me to be his lover, I said, well, if you're willing to find a way for us to get married, I will commit to you. And so that's when I said, well, I'm going to have to find a way to go to law school. And that's where it all started. One of the things that Jack discovered in law school is that there are many ways to accomplish what you really want to do in the legal system. We thought, let's change Jack's name. Let's make it gender neutral. So we changed Jack's name to Pat Lynn McConnell. And the license was issued. We went to a friend who was registered with the state to perform marriages and asked him to perform our marriage, which he did. That was September 3rd, 1971. Our rings have a, a particular, very powerful meaning for me. When our rings are put together, it says, Jack loves Mike, and then you re reverse the sides and it says, Mike loves Jack. We got quite a bit of criticism and very few people were actually supporting us. But I figured, well, history would speak for itself. That's Jack Baker and his husband, Michael McConnell, for StoryCorps. In 2015, the Supreme Court ruled same-sex couples do, in fact, have a constitutional right to marry. Their interview is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru. Subaru has donated more than $40 million to support the adoption, rescue, transport, and health of more than 350,000 animals. Learn more at Subaru.com pets. And from Morgan Stanley, a proud sponsor of StoryCorps. Morgan Stanley is committed to giving back and to fostering meaningful dialogue among people and communities. More at morganstanley.com. This is NPR News. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, what President Biden's next steps might be after the White House issued a rare rebuke to Saudi Arabia over that country's support for decreasing global oil production. And the dispute over who's responsible for the truck bombing of a bridge that was a key supply line for Russian troops in Ukraine. It's 829. Tonight at WBUR City Space, join Tiziana Deering for a conversation with entrepreneur Deborah Torres. She's become a leader in the vegan food market after turning down a huge deal on the TV show Shark Tank. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol wants to hear from former President Donald Trump. NPR's Claudia Grisales says the panel voted unanimously to subpoena Trump at yesterday's public hearing. The expectations are pretty low at this point, especially that Trump himself has already responded on his social media app. He said the panel was, quote, a total bust. And he also said that it has served to, quote, divide our country. This latest public hearing was the 10th by the committee. 
The Mexican government is reporting a massive data leak exposing some of the country's most sensitive information. NPR's Ader Peralta in Mexico City says NPR has obtained the documents revealed by hackers. This has revealed a ton about Mexico's military. We've learned that despite being tasked with fighting the drug war, some of its soldiers sold weapons to the cartels. Uh, We've learned that the military keeps statistics on murders and that they run surveillance on airports. We found that they keep dossiers on politicians and environmental activists, anarchists and feminists. In one email, we found what a military official calls counterintelligence operation against the bricklayers at a government project. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Boston planning officials have signed off on a new plan for the Western Avenue corridor. That strip goes from Alston to Brighton between the Mass Pike and the Charles River. The new plan will see close to 2 million square feet of new real estate in the area. Developers' plans include hundreds of new residential units. The Boston Planning and Development Agency says about 20 percent of those units will be income-restricted. Analysts at the MBTA say half-priced fares for low-income riders could make the T more affordable for them. The Boston Herald reports researchers also considered the feasibility of making Greater Boston's bus system free. But they found that idea would cost the agency more and would benefit fewer people. The Huntington Theater opens tonight for its 41st season. It's been closed for two and a half years. As WBUR's Lauren Williams reports, audiences will see a transformed space. After closing for construction during the pandemic, the Huntington Theater has been renovated and improved. Managing Director Michael Masso says crews restored the architectural landmark to its full glory. Everything has been enhanced, both for the purposes of making the audience experience better, but also to provide the resources and the tools that actors, designers, directors, that everyone working in the building needs in order to do their best work. The theater will open with the production of August Wilson's play, Joe Turner's Coming Gone. The Huntington originally produced it in 1986. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lauren Williams. There will be a groundbreaking today on a new green space on the East Boston waterfront. Piers Park 2 is a four and a half acre space with water features, a playground and a sailing center. It'll also help protect East Boston from coastal flooding caused by climate change. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics have their final preseason game tonight as they visit the Toronto Raptors. Looking ahead to Sunday, that's when the 2-3 and three Patriots will visit the Cleveland Browns. In your forecast, overcast and gusty winds today with a good chance of rain and thunderstorms. Temperatures will top out around 70. Tonight, those fall to the low 60s and skies clear overnight. Then a great weekend. Sunny and nearly 70 on Saturday. Mostly sunny and in the mid-60s on Sunday. It's 66 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. 
More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldin in Washington. Good morning. The relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia is a complicated one. For more than seven decades, the two countries have maintained a close relationship largely centered on oil. But after the Saudis urged OPEC Plus to slash global oil production, the White House and the kingdom are fighting over oil in public. President Biden is warning there will be consequences for Saudi Arabia. And Pierre White House correspondent Asma Khalid has been digging into this story and joins us now. Hi. Hi there, Leela. So, Asma, walk us back. I remember you were on that trip President Biden took to Saudi Arabia this summer. Controversial trip because of the human rights record under Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But the visit happened. There was that fist bump. So walk us through how we got here. Well, after that trip, Saudi accelerated its production of oil. And in fact, it was producing a near record amount, which helped bring down those high gas prices we all remember seeing earlier this year. And I talked with a senior Biden administration official who spoke on the condition of anonymity to candidly describe private conversations at the time. Uh, So the Saudis were telling U.S. officials that the kingdom was prepared to keep production high through the end of the year. But when global oil prices started plunging, the Saudis got nervous about market volatility And the official told me that led to a two and a half hour phone conversation between U.S. officials and the Saudi oil minister and the Saudi finance minister. They just had a fundamental disagreement over the state of the world economy and the role that oil prices play. They argue that an oil cut would increase inflationary pressures. Uh, But still, last week, OPEC Plus announced it would cut production by 2 million barrels a day. And, you know, this is a group that includes Russia, which wants higher oil prices because it's fighting a very expensive war in Ukraine. Okay, but the Biden White House has accused Saudi Arabia of helping Russia with this move. Is that really what's actually happening here? Well, the Saudi foreign ministry issued a statement saying OPEC plus decisions are made through, quote, consensus and based purely on economic considerations. The Saudis are also claiming that the U.S. suggested the cuts be delayed by a month, which is when OPEC next meets, but it is also after the midterm elections. And and look, Layla, this all comes at a time when many Americans are anxious already about rising prices, gas prices going up as a result of this news, just as people are beginning to vote, could have consequences. And Republicans have been eager to campaign on inflation. Uh, I asked Bob McNally about all of this. He's been watching the oil markets for years, uh, initially in the Bush administration, and now as the president of Rapidan Energy Group. He told me a country like Saudi Arabia is hyper-focused on avoiding low oil prices. That is all they care about. Had we not even had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, had we not even had the tiff with President Biden, I still believe they would have cut production because of that free fall in oil prices. But the optics of it were terrible because it does coincide with the proximity of the U.S. elections, with inflation concerns and with the war Russia's war in Ukraine, with Russia playing a high profile role. Okay, so has the White House been receptive to the Saudi argument that this decision was about the bottom line? No, Leila, they say there was no economic reason to do this. Uh, They say they told the Saudis you could easily wait till the next meeting to see how the situation develops. The White House also says no matter how the Saudis try to spin this, ultimately it will increase revenues for Russian President Vladimir Putin and blunt the effectiveness of sanctions. Uh, Here's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby yesterday. Bottom line is we don't want to see any nation helping Russia prosecute this war, whether that's moral support military support or economic support. 
And the decision that OPEC plus came out with the, this uh, week was certainly economic support. And I would argue it also fell into the category of moral and military support because it allows him to continue to fund his war making machine. And it certainly gave him, Mr. Putin, a sense of comfort here. And Leila, this really is an unusually public disagreement we're seeing between the Saudis and the Americans. Yeah, I mean, the White House even said that as a result of this decision, it's reevaluating its relationship with Riyadh. What does that actually mean? Well, President Biden's going to be talking to members of Congress. Senator Menendez, who chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, wants to freeze arms sales to Saudi. And Bob McNally, the energy expert I mentioned earlier, says it's going to be important to see what the Saudis do if the world needs more oil this winter to offset the big loss of Russian supply. That could be a key turning point. NPR's Asma Khan, and thank you. My pleasure. It's been six days since an explosion damaged the bridge linking Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. And since then, it still hasn't been publicly determined just how it was pulled off. Russia's security service arrested eight people who it alleges planted a truck bomb. The Ukrainian government has not claimed responsibility. NPR's Yulian Haida looked for clues about who did it based on how it happened. Ukrainian television and social media abound with theories about what happened to the Crimean Bridge. It couldn't have been a rocket, says Ukrainian military expert Oleg Zhdanov, because the Ukrainian military doesn't have the kind of long-range rockets it would have required. Before ballistics experts can figure out how a bridge collapsed, they need to know what kind of bridge it is. The Crimean Bridge has some quite large arch structures, but the majority of the bridge is a much simpler beam bridge design. That's Andrew Barr. He researches blast and impact dynamics at the University of Sheffield. He says it's like one of those highway overpasses that we've all seen with big vertical columns holding up the road above. That's the kind of section where the blast in the Crimea Bridge happened. Three big chunks of the bridge, still barely held together, slipped to the bottom of the sea. But if it was one truck bomb, like Russian authorities say, why are there three damaged sections? The answer, says Barr, has to do with the sound you hear when you drive over a long bridge. That regular clunk-clunk noise as you drive is the sound of your tires passing over one of these joints. Instead of a bridge like this being one long road, it's a bunch of short roads that just butt together. So if one section falls off the cement column, it can pull others down with it. Now, Ukrainian authorities have said that Russia may have orchestrated the blast itself. Here's Andrew Barr. The sparks in uh, the air immediately after the explosion suggest the addition of some kind of reactive material. Such as thermite, which human rights groups have accused Russia of using in Syria and Ukraine. No matter who's responsible, Barr says the attack took a lot of expert planning to break a bridge with rare explosives. After all, bridges are engineered to withstand a lot. The pressures involved are so high that none of our standard building materials are strong enough to withstand them. So there's no realistic way of completely avoiding damage. For now, Russia has vowed to step up security at the bridge to prevent further damage. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News.
I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren previews a congressional hearing she's holding today in Boston on the problems plaguing the MBTA. She plans to put tough questions to top T officials. Some patchy fog this morning, then a cloudy, windy, and rainy Friday today. It'll warm up to near 70, then fall back to the low 60s tonight, clearing overnight, and tomorrow will be sunny and near 70. Sunday, mostly sunny and mid-60s. It's 66 degrees right now at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, now through October 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Now in business news, UMass Boston is getting $820,000 from the state to help startups develop, develop better ways to study the ocean. Carolyn Clerk is executive director for the Massachusetts Technology Collaborative. She says that people want to know what's happening in the ocean. In terms of temperature and changes and what that looks like over time, and getting that data captured and tracked is something that our innovators are working on. Some of the money will support space for the budding companies and tools that the startups can't afford. Greenlight Biosciences is laying off a quarter of its staff. That comes not even a year after the company went public. The company tells the Boston Business Journal it's trying to cut costs. The layoffs follow similar moves from other biotech companies in the city. Last week, Cyclarian Therapeutics said it'd be laying off nearly half of its employees. You may have heard of a cronut, but have you heard of a crawfle? A new cafe in Chestnut Hill is serving up the waffle croissant hybrids. Glazed Bites was opened this month by a Boston University graduate, James Park. Right now, it's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ongoing safety problems at the MBTA and their economic impact will be the focus today of a rare Senate hearing held here in Boston. Leading that hearing will be Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's long been critical of the MBTA's efforts to improve. She joins us now. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. Overall, what are you hoping to learn and accomplish with this hearing? Look, I am a huge supporter of transit, of the MBTA. We've tried, Senator Markey and I and the rest of the delegation, to get plenty of funds into the MBTA. But without a plan, without management, without some indication that they're actually using that money to deliver what the people of Massachusetts are entitled to, and that means safe, accessible trains that run on time, a transit system that works, we can't just keep pouring money into this. So this is about the management report that the federal government has now done as a matter of oversight and bringing in the leaders of the MBTA to say basically what's gone wrong and why is it you guys still have your jobs? Do you think Congress should be putting in money? And you've also talked about the state surplus perhaps being used that way. Where do you think is most appropriate for this money to come from? You know, I think some of it should come from the federal government and some of it should come from the state. This is about a good partnership 
But money without vision is just a waste. We need that money to be used in ways that really do produce a transit system that works. And part of what we're going to talk about are the preventable errors, the preventable waste, and why it is that a strong governor can step in and put her vision on the MBTA and really make it work for the people of Massachusetts. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak will testify today. So will the head of the Department of Public Utilities, the agency that oversees the T. You've been critical of both and suggested new leadership may be needed. So what approach are you going to take with them today? Well, we're actually going to start with the head of the Federal Transit Administration. And then we're going to have the head of the MBTA and the head of the Department of Public Utilities there to explain why they have permitted these safety violations to go on and on, why it is that they have presided over an MBTA that has such a clear list of failures and the resources to be able to correct those failures. I want them to account for themselves. And if they can't account for themselves, then we need to get people in those positions who are willing to take some responsibility. You know, the response to those inquiries is often we're dealing with an aging system. We had uh, parts that were uh, we couldn't get during the pandemic. But most importantly, it was uh, we don't have enough people to deal with the situation. Do you consider that a valid excuse? Well, why do you not have enough people? Why would the MBTA have trouble hiring? They pay well. If management is not creating a safe working environment, if it's not creating an environment where people want to come to work and do the work, then you can't just blame that on people who didn't show up at the MBTA and somehow volunteer to work. That is also a management issue. Senator, why did you want to hold this hearing here in Boston? A field hearing is unusual, but when things get so badly out of control, One of the jobs of the federal government in the transit area is to step in and actually talk about what's wrong and exercise some oversight. Um, And that's what I'm trying to do with this hearing, is to shine a spotlight on a federal report that tells about the terrible failures of the MBTA, the kind that the MBTA itself doesn't want to bring forward, the kind that the agency that oversees the MBTA doesn't want to bring forward, to bring all that forward into the public view so that we can make real change. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren, thank you so much for speaking with WBR's Morning Edition. Oh, thank you for having me. This is 90.9 WPUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Marketplace Morning Report is coming up. And coming up at noon today, it's Here and Now. And Deepa Fernandez is here in studio to fill us in on what they're going to be talking today about today. Hi, Deepa. It's so good to see you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Rupa. Good morning to everyone. And, you know, we're going to be following up 
kind of just as you were talking to one of our elected representatives, we will be talking to Democratic Representative Zoe Lofgren of California, who is one of the committee members of the January 6th hearings. There were a lot of surprises that came out yesterday. I'm sure everybody was tuned in. So so we've got some real questions for her about what next mm-hmm. and, and what they expect. Will former tre- President Donald Trump actually show up and testify they've asked for him in a subpoena? We'll be talking about that. And what happens if he doesn't? And what happens if he doesn't? And will it just be an act of political theater if he does? So we're going to be diving into that as well as some of the Senate race debates. One happened last night, another one in Georgia tonight. We've got a lot of politics to cover on the show, as well as some light music and and other fun things. Good. You get to have some fun on a Friday. Thank you, Deepa. Thanks, Rupa. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, question one. Whether you call it the fair share amendment or the millionaire's tax, voters will have their say at the polls this November. So it's debate time. The yes and no campaigns join us live. Brought to you by WBUR, the Boston Globe, and WCVB. That's Radio Boston today at 11. Only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Overcast with high winds and a good chance of rain and maybe a thunderstorm near 70 today. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston at 8.52. Can a supermarket chain get too big? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps get rid of them. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax compliance at avalara.com. And by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to clients' long-term goals. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. I'm David Brancaccio. First, after three weeks of extreme bond market volatility in Britain, triggered by London's move to borrow a lot to pay for tax cuts, Prime Minister Liz Truss will brief reporters in just a couple minutes where a policy U-turn seems to be on the table. There's already news today of the firing of the recently appointed finance minister, Kwaste Kwarteng, now no longer Chancellor of the Exchequer. British bonds are rallying here too, bringing the U.S. 10-year interest rate down to 2.88%. This morning, Dow futures are up 65 points, two-tenths percent, similar rise for S&P futures. For really no reason, the Dow closed up 827 points yesterday, 2.8 percent. Two of the biggest supermarket chains in the country this morning said they've worked out a deal to merge. If antitrust regulators approve, this would combine a number of brand names that you may know, Vaughn's, Ralph's, Safeway. Okay, Nova, that's your cue. Okay, David. Uh, Food for Less, Kings, Pavilions, Lucky, Fred Meyer, Pick and Save. I could go on, but I won't. The two parent companies we're talking about are Kroger, the nation's biggest grocery chain, and Albertsons, which is the second biggest. The agreement has Kroger buying Albertsons for a deal valued at about $25 billion to be paid for in cash and debt. The two companies together have almost 5,000 store locations. They point out, though, that their footprints don't overlap very much. They expect to spin off between 100 and 375 of their stores, David. Now, this merger deal comes at a time when the Biden people are increasing their scrutiny of corporate tie-ups. What's the argument for these two chains coming together? Well, the argument, David, really is one other name, and that's Walmart. Uh, Kroger and Albertsons are the biggest grocery chains, but they're not the biggest grocer. 
Walmart has the largest share of the market in the U.S., somewhere around 20 to 25 percent. Kroger and Albertsons combined account for about 13 percent or so of the grocery market. The argument Kroger is making this morning is that a combined company can be better positioned to lower expenses, raise wages, and compete in this inflationary environment. Now, on the other side of this argument, of course, is that combining Kroger and Albertsons would create a huge company and reduce competition. And the Biden administration, as you said, has been scrutinizing competition in various industries, so you can expect they'll be doing that here as well. Marketplace's Nova Safa, thank you. By the way, the 10-year interest rate is up at 3.88%, not what I said earlier. After the surge of people applying for unemployment benefits during deep pandemic, governments sent some money to ineligible recipients, and now Texas has sent notices to a million and a half people asking for money back. But critics say the fraud detection system in Texas too often flags the wrong people. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav reports. Catherine Tapia was laid off in March 2020 from a daycare in Harlingen, so she applied for unemployment. I started receiving payments. Everything was going fine. She was one of the two and a half million Texans who applied for unemployment in the first three months of the pandemic. That's somewhere between 10 and 20 times the number in an average year. And then all of a sudden, I want to say maybe around September, I started receiving letters of overpayment. The Texas Workforce Commission said she wasn't unemployed, that she had a job in North Carolina and in South Carolina and one in Delaware. According to state records, Tapia is one of a quarter million Texans sent an overpayment notice due to an ID theft issue. David Mock with the Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid says Texas Workforce Commission or TWC is kicking people off unemployment without due process, and that breaks the law. The law is very clear that the TWC, before it determines someone has been overpaid, needs to consult that person and get their response. Texas tried to get money back from one and a half million people between 2020 and 2021, and a half million Texans have appealed. The state also tried to seize the federal tax returns of 31,000 residents. Texas isn't the only state being sued over its practices. Rhode Island, Michigan, and Maryland have also been sued. Michelle Evermore oversees unemployment insurance modernization for the U.S. Department of Labor. Her office offered guidance on when states can waive overpayments of pandemic unemployment dollars. We're trying to identify scenarios in which the state made a mistake and people got overpaid, but it wasn't their fault. The money's long gone, and we should really try to hold some of these people harmless uh, when, when they've made innocent errors. But in Texas, between March 2020 and June 2021, the state rejected people's overpayment waivers about 90% of the time. In San Antonio, I'm Paul Flav for Marketplace. And the IRS is trying to contact about 9 million people who've not filed for their advanced child care credit that they're due. If you're eligible but don't apply, it could mean leaving $3,600 on the table. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing stability and continuity for client relationships. More information at BairdDifference.com. And by Palo Alto Networks. Secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. PaloAltoNetworks.com. And by In Deep Season 2, which follows the people in a working-class city as they struggle to rebuild after a year of climate chaos. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we've been running our series on money, politics, and whether campaign donors, what I've been calling them, 
secret Santas. They spend big, but voters never know it's them. Voters in Arizona next month will decide whether some of the biggest campaign spenders should have to reveal their true identities. Americans for peanut butter or Americans for a better tomorrow. If 211 passes, I certainly expect a constitutional challenge. It was devastating. And I think both sides have come to realize it's sort of a weapon of mass destruction that isn't really helping anybody. We're putting up a special podcast version of the story, one show, Secret Money, Public Influence, for your on-demand listening. It's full of, I think, teachable moments about the mystery money in campaigns, citizen efforts to get sources of money identified, and the pushback from those who believe anonymity should be part of the right to free speech. Later today and through the weekend, this podcast will be right there atop the Marketplace Morning Report feed, the podcast feed. You may have signed up free already, but if not, it's wherever you get your podcasts. Our digital producer is Redmond Carolipio. Our engineers are Jess and Dooler, Brian Allison, and Nick Esposito. Just drove across the country to take the position in Los Angeles. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. May PM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR, a windy, cloudy, and rainy day today before some wonderful weekend weather. It'll be near 70, and there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. Down to low 50s tonight with clearing skies, and then a sunny Saturday near 70. Sunday will be mostly sunny and in the mid-60s. It's 66 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. WBUR supporters include the MIT Museum, completely reimagined and now open in its new location in Kendall Square. Curious? What does the Congressional January 6th Committee hope to hear from Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas? She was more than just a kook who was sending all of these messages to Mark Meadows, trying to get Trump and the White House to do all sorts of things to overturn the election. I think they want to show that her role was actually far more sophisticated than that. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.